is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full-Time Travel. And every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest today is the TV writer, Kristen Newman, who has spent the last 25 years working on shows like How I Met Your Mother, That 70s Show, and Only Murders in the Building. As a lifelong traveler, Kristen used the breaks between seasons to explore the world, often alone, as more and more of her friends settled down. Her memoir, What I Was Doing While You Were Breeding, details her years as a single woman traversing the globe and enjoying commitment-free romances along the way. In this episode, Kristen shares two very different trips to Argentina. The first, a two-month stint in which she attempted to live like a local, fell in love, and decided to commit the next decade of her life to travel instead of marriage and babies. 18 years later, she returned to Argentina to shoot a TV show based on her memoir, this time with her parents, husband, and child in tow. Spoiler alert, she did eventually breed. Join us as we discuss how to meet people as a solo traveler, the complexity of memoir writing and the weird feeling Kristen experienced while watching her life story acted out for the screen, and the ways that travel lets you try on new identities and take a vacation from yourself. Just a quick note to apologize for some technical difficulties on my end. The audio isn't great. However, it is 100% worth sticking with this. Kristen is amazing, so please enjoy this episode. Kristen, welcome to The Chip That Changed Me. I'm so excited to speak with you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So I normally like to kick things off by asking, where did your love of travel originate? Well, I would say that originally it probably came from my mother, which probably came from her mother, though her mother didn't really get to travel at all. But they both had this big love for Latin America. My grandmother kind of was a housewife by force. She got pregnant and my grandfather would only marry her if she stopped working. So she stayed home, had my mom, two more babies, didn't like it. The second that the third one was out of the house, she went back to college at Compton Junior College, like as in straight out of Compton. And my like little white Iowa grandma went to college and signed up as an exchange student in Mexico. I forget exactly where, but some nice family who I just imagine had like a teenage boy who was really excited about his like young uh, American new sister who was going to come uh, instead got my grandma and she loved it. And then my mom was a lawyer who was an international corporate attorney and, and traveled and worked all over the world and took me on a trip when I was about 15 to Indonesia with her to work and Bali and then in Jakarta. And we didn't stay at hotels. And that was kind of the beginning of my love of, of traveling, not to be in a beautiful resort to lay on the beach, but to meet the people who live there and learn crazy, interesting tidbits about what it is to be a person who lives in this other place. And that was kind of always what drove me to be a traveler instead of a vacationer, is how I always put it. And to try to try to just kind of force my way into wherever I was for a little bit of time and move very slowly, not 10 cities in two weeks, and try to kind of make friends locally and and uh, find at least one barista who by the end of my trip knew my order and make my way in that way. So I would say it's from my mother. I love her. that. I heard you say on another podcast that you discovered that 20% of the population has an actual wanderlust gene. So it sounds like that's coming through your maternal line quite strongly. 
Yeah, that was so soothing for me to learn because I felt like I always judged my dad who sat on the couch all day, every day. And when I would, I, even later in his life said, if I could beam you somewhere right now, anywhere on earth, without having to take a trip, a plane, anything like that, where would you want to go? And he was like, nowhere. You know, I've seen everything on National Geographic. I like watching the sunset in my backyard. And I'm like, you don't ever actually have to go on this trip. Like, this is just a mind game. Let's just imagine. And even just for the imagination play of it all, he just didn't have any urges. And I judged him for it. But then I came up with this theory about when I found out about this gene, about why this could be. And it kind of makes sense in terms of evolution, that if we're a tribe out in the woods exploring, that there would be some people who would want to go look over the next mountain and see if there's like fresh water or a new food source or like a nicer, safer place to live. But some people who should stay behind probably and take care of the kids and have some more kids in case all of those explorers got eaten, right? So that the tribe can continue and you kind of need both. And I can understand how evolutionarily like we got that. Made me not feel so judgy about myself being like restless and not so judgy at my relatives who didn't want to roam, you know? And I know you've worked in TV for over 25 years, long time. One of the cool things about that career is you get these big, long breaks, right, between seasons. Did you choose that career so that you could have the breaks to go traveling or was that just kind of fortuitous? No, it was really just fortuitous. And then I also happened to get my first writing job on that 70s show, which ran for eight years. And what happens certainly all the time now, especially as we're all on strike as we speak, primarily because the business has changed so much that now jobs are 10 weeks, 12 weeks, 15 weeks. It used to be at least that you got a job and it often was nine or 10 months. And you got this hunk of time off in between. But even then, you still had to spend that time usually hustling in front of the job because most shows didn't go more than one or two seasons. I happened to end up on this very lucky place where it was so successful and it was a time that was different that I think season two, we got a four-year pickup, which just doesn't happen ever anymore. It's only one season at a time. And so we knew we had all of these years of employment. Nobody really got fired from that job. So it was very secure. And you had these three months off every year, like a teacher has, except with TV money instead of teacher money to get to go and explore. And while a lot of people would stay home and actually write their own passion project, I feel like maybe I'm a lazy writer and felt like I'd written plenty during the year. And what am I going to write about if I sit home and write all day in between when I am at work writing all day? So I got to kind of go out there and, and, and do these trips. And the title of your memoir, I absolutely love. It's so genius. What I was doing while you were breeding. Thank I know you. That it's cheeky. <laughs> it is cheeky. I love it. Um, the era of life when people start kind of settling down and starting families is such a transitional time for friendships and especially for travel buddies. Do you feel like you initially began traveling solo out of a choice or was it out of necessity because there was no one really available to travel with at that stage? It was sort of both. I was never single in my 20s. I had two boyfriends back to back and kind of got out of the second relationship specifically because of that, because I kind of felt like being a single adult and dealing with loneliness and being brave and having single girl adventures and different partners and all of those things felt like just a life experience that every human being should have to me. And so I did that right as everybody else was finishing up their era of doing all of those things and starting to settle down. 
And so I found myself for a little while, at least until I found another group of um, single 30 somethings kind of on my own in that. And also, in addition to that, my only real regret in life had been that I didn't study abroad in college or ever live in another country. And so I had this lucky three months off um, where I kind of wanted to pretend that I lived somewhere else for three months. And so I took my first trip by myself because I wanted to check something off and prove something to myself that I could do it. But also because people were disappearing and uh, my girlfriends who I had gone on trips on with in my 20s were getting married and having babies. And so it started because of that. And so that's the trip, you know, that changed me. It was this first trip by myself to Argentina when I was 31. And I got an apartment in Buenos Aires and took five days a week of Spanish and four days a week of tango and got a local cell phone, which you had to do at the time and made local friends and got a local boyfriend and really pretended like I lived there and found a barista who knew my order by the by the end and got like these little pleasures in life, like figuring out how to, you know, buy vegetables in a grocery store in Argentina, which is very complicated, actually. There's stickers, there's weighing, there's a whole thing and you get yelled at if you haven't done it. And uh, I didn't really speak Spanish at the time. So everything was was more difficult. But I came back from that trip so empowered and excited by what it felt like to be by myself and to have made all of these friends all by myself and to get to walk around the world after that as somebody who traveled by herself that I got kind of addicted to it. So it was a scary thing that I loved so much that kind of every February when my three months were coming up where I'd be off and can travel, if there was a partner in my life, I kind of ended the relationship because I just didn't want to bring them with me. So that happened. And that is what led to the book, which turned into a TV show, which I just shot the last year about the book. And the first season is about my trip to Argentina. So I just got back a month and a half ago from four months in Argentina. Oh my goodness. Okay. Let's rewind. Let's rewind. First of all, um, I know you said that your family had kind of an affinity for South America. Is that why you picked Argentina or what led you to to that? Why were you drawn to that place specifically? I don't know. I hadn't been to South America before. I spoke a little Mm. bit of Spanish. I live in California. Felt like learning more Spanish would be a smart thing to do. And uh, there was just something about Argentina that somehow drew me. It felt like it is this combination of South America and Italy and Spain and kind of a European vibe for Buenos Aires, at least. And something about that felt like it was going to be both exciting, but also a little bit uh, comfortable because I'd spent time in Europe before. And so it just drew me down there. Also, I really wanted to see the penguins. It was the year of March of the penguins. And I think that really, really was a focus. <laughs> I love that. And you said you wanted to live like a local for a while. And it seems like you were quite tactical about that. Did you have it all planned out before that you were going to do this language immersion? And, you know, did, I mean, obviously, you couldn't have predicted that you were going to meet a guy. But, you know, how much were you sort of planning on um, before you went down there in terms of like making yourself feel like you really were a local? I was very panicked about free time and space, which is um, on hand in general for me. And so definitely all of the four hours a day of Spanish that started at 9 a.m., which is not correct because you stay out until five in the morning there, six in the morning. You cannot start things at nine in the morning there. Dinner's at midnight. So I did that and uh, and all of this tango with this kind of terror that I wouldn't meet people. It was this era before apps and meetups and all of these things that make it so easy now. I'm so jealous 
of solo travelers in the moment because there's just every single night of the week, you can just go on to some digital nomad meetup and meet a hundred people. But it wasn't like that. It was, I had Facebook and I made a who knows anybody in Argentina post. And one person had a, a sister who's had a friend from college who lived there, who was an American expat who I went out to dinner with and met people through and then met the people in my Spanish class and met all of these people. But it did kind of flow a little bit unplanned from there, other than those classes. And I did go back to Argentina a year later with a very detailed plan and reservations and hotels and a whole thing. And the whole trip blew up in a million different ways that I took very much as a sign that the planning was the problem. I would say it was structured, but unplanned. And as you mentioned, you did meet a guy down there who would be in your life for the next six years. How did you beat him? I got taken to some party that was like an opening for a fancy golf course, like 45 minutes outside of town in this um, community called Mar Delta by somebody who I was trying to figure out who she was this year. And I, I really can't figure out who it was. But she took me out there and she introduced me to this guy who had just got out of the seminary six months earlier where he had been for four years training to be a Catholic priest. So he had not been dating at all since then. And yeah, we met and started to date. And that was that. Like you said, when there's no apps, it's very a different experience. I'm sure it was completely different back then. And did you feel like there was a language barrier? How did that impact your connection with him? No, he spoke pretty good English. He went to a, a bilingual school. Definitely kind of later in the years when we were writing to each other back and forth, I was like, oh, maybe his English is not quite as strong as I think it is. Maybe he's missing some of what I'm saying sometimes, but it was very strong. And so we really always spoke English together. It wasn't bad. He was very kind of hard to get that first year because he was terrified of me because he just got out of the seminary. So I kind of fled to Bariloche in Patagonia for a couple of weeks when I was realizing that I was kind of sitting around waiting for an almost priest to call, which seemed tragic in my first trip alone. So I went to Bariloche in a time when no one goes there. It's kind of a, it's a summer and winter resort town. And I was there in very late fall when it was just horizontal Patagonian rain and darkness a lot of the time. And so I signed up for Spanish again so I could meet people. I was the only person in my Spanish class. There was no one in town. It was deserted. But there was this lovely guy who worked in the front office of the Spanish school that was empty except for me. And so I started to date him and he did not speak English. And that was where I really finally got my Spanish going and learned how to I was speaking Spanish in my sleep. It turned out a couple of weeks in, which I was very proud of. But that relationship was much harder in terms of language. Your book revolves around a lot of romances you had while you were traveling. Israeli bartenders, Finnish poker players, sexy Bedouins, and Argentinian priests, as you mentioned. Besides the obvious, what did these connections give you and how did they enhance the travel experience? Because I always was trying to not stay in a hotel and try to meet locals, the real thing that I write about loving is doing the thing you're supposed to do in the place you're supposed to do it, right? Like having the perfect typical experience for that place. That's the real joy for me. And meeting locals and getting invited into a local's birthday party or to a private little place that nobody else knows about just learning what they eat for breakfast, just any sort of little specific difference that you learn when you just spend a lot of time with somebody who lives there, that's treasure. That's the thing I seek out. 
And so whether that's through a romantic connection or through a friendship, that's what I'm always seeking. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be the person who is like seeking out, collecting people so that I could like gather their local knowledge. But I think that they were with me for a similar reason, right? I think that it's exciting when you are stuck at home to get to meet somebody from another place. I often wondered when I was in LA, why am I not just going to the youth hostel bar, literally two blocks away from me, <laughs> to drink and meet people from other places if I really am enjoying meeting people from other places so very much. But there's something about when you're home that you don't seek that out. And so, I don't know, maybe me inserting myself into these people's lives was exciting or welcome for a little bit. It's like they got to have a little vacation romance too, even though they weren't on vacation. Oh, that is, it's such a good way into a place now that you mention it. I hadn't really thought of it before, but it can be hard to make those connections in other places. And I feel like you've become a bit of a poster child for solo travel. Do you have any other kind of tips for meeting people in unfamiliar places? Well, aside from these very easy ways that everybody has now with all of the meetups, I love a day tour. Just I don't like a tour tour, but just signing up for some sort of adventure or, you know, or day excursion. I feel like that's always filled with solo travelers or just people who are in a bus together and having lunch together and running around together all day long. And so you always talk to each other. And so signing up for those is always, I think, a really quick way in. Signing up for little classes. Now, when I was in Argentina the last few months, a lot of people who are down there with me who are single were signing up for a lot of Airbnb experiences. So like an empanada making class or a day at an estancia or a trip out uh, to Colonia in Uruguay with a just little group of people. I feel like that's an easy way to meet people. Also, a tremendous amount of Uber romances arose in Argentina this year, which I found fascinating to watch. I think in a place like Argentina where the economy is so very just ruined right now. Everybody has side gigs. So everybody's driving Uber, or as they call it, Cabify. And so you've got a real cross-section of types of people that you have driving you all the time. And there are a few romances that came out of that. Interesting. I'm, I'm curious to know, since you've been to all of these different places and had these romances, these vacation romances, what are some of the cultural differences? Here in New York, I wouldn't imagine that people get picked up by their Uber driver in that way very often. <laughs> Is there, are there some cultural differences that you've noticed in the way that people approach potential romantic partners? Yeah, definitely. And also, it's changed so much, right? Like, I'm not a single person anymore. I got a husband and did all of these things. And so now I'm sort of reporting from this other side of things. It was like, before people were just swiping and having sex and then going on with their day. Like that wasn't happening. So it was more unusual to go to someplace like Israel. They're just very straightforward. Everybody is, if they're not very religious, they're not religious at all. And there's very little judgment about sex. And so it's, and there's no small talk in Israel anyway. And there's no saying what you don't mean. And there's always saying specifically what you mean right away in a very blunt way which is what I love about it. There's no messing around with things you don't really mean. And so it's very straightforward culture. So that's happening all the time, which was a little more unusual 15 years ago before all of the apps and all of the swiping, I feel like. You need to sort of know how to decode the signs sometimes, maybe in some cultures. I mean, London or like the UK is a perfect example of that. I think maybe a drunk guy might come up to you in a bar, but I think it's a lot harder to meet people, especially without, you know, 
alcohol around. Yes, yes, really hard. <laughs> but then there's also places like Brazil. I, I uh-huh. write about this in my book too. I have this big group of crazy 30-something friends that I met and started traveling with a lot when I was single and in my 30s. And this group of guys is very successful with every culture of women. I've watched them all over the world be very successful. And they talked about how in Brazil, they would over and over again come into a bar, immediately start talking up women, have a great time, buy them drinks. Everybody's looking flirty and interested. And then after like 20 minutes, the women would wander off over and over again. And they were finally asking a local, you know, why do we keep striking out? And she said, well, had you tried to kiss the women yet? And the guys were like, no, we just met. We just bought a drink. And they're like, oh, in Brazil, if a guy hasn't tried to kiss you after 20 minutes, he's not interested. So, you know, these are the kinds of little cues a person doesn't know about. I'm fascinated by the way that travel gives us permission to try on like other lives and identities. And I know you talk about your travel persona as being Kristen adjacent. I'd love to hear more about that side of you, what you embody when you travel. Yeah, that was the main thing that I think addicted me to solo travel is this feeling like there's nobody around who knows who you really are and who is acts as a mirror. And especially now that we're posting everything all the time and I feel like we're all judging each other and judged so much because we self-promote all of the things that are going on in our lives. Everybody has a real idea of who you are. Everybody's very careful about who they're presenting as themselves. And so it's really hard to suddenly change. Like even I'm blonde, I'm a blonde person, but for like five years, I went brunette. And a thing happens when you darken your hair instead of lighten your hair, which is everyone thinks you're depressed. (laughs) Everyone says, what is wrong? Are you okay? Did something happen? Are you going through something? So even something as small as that, people have ideas about what it must mean that you're making this change. And so if you want to be different in any way, just even for a week or two to just get a vacation from being yourself, which is, I find like the most relentless thing in the world is just being inside your own head all day, every day and being inside your life and the way that you live and the way that you present yourself all the time is exhausting. And that's what I really found I needed a break from. And I felt like when I was alone, that was when I could be a little different. And I'm a comedy writer. I spent all day in a room full of people talking faster than I talk, yelling over each other, making fun of each other relentlessly. Lastly, like the thickness of the skin that has to be built around you so that you don't do what I did really the whole first year I was in that writer's room was just like do a bit where I pretended I was running out of the room to cry and like covered my head in a sweatshirt when what I was really actually doing was just running out of the room to cry. You really have to build up these walls and taking them down and just slowing down because you can't speak the language. That's especially why I like to travel places where I don't speak the language is all I can do is shut up. My first, the trip that I write about as being my first real trip that kind of opened me up to that was I went to Russia with my best friend who was born there and her mother who emigrated when my friend was three. We went back when we were 28 and it was their first time back since they had emigrated and they spoke fluent Russian. We were with Russians all the time. Russians don't mostly speak English. So I just really had to sit quietly and smile a lot. And at home, I don't 
do that. I work my ass off at work all day long. I feel the silences at a dinner party. I feel the silences. I make sure that if somebody's left out, I ask them questions. I like make sure that anybody that needs anything kind of is taken care of. And when I couldn't speak and I had to just sit quietly, I kind of panicked for a while that I was just completely unconnected and judged maybe for being boring. I'm so defined by words. But eventually it became so relaxing to just sit quietly and not be able to help. And everybody was fine without me, it turns out. And I didn't need to take responsibility for everyone. And I'm a little better at that at home now because of that. But I'm not that great at it still. I still kind of like flee to a bathroom at a party every half hour or so to just sit quietly because I can't really do it in a crowd. It's so true. And I think, you know, another thing that you said that really resonated in the pre-show notes was that it made you feel brave this first trip to Argentina and that that was a brand new feeling for you. So how did that kind of play out once you got back to your real life in the States? Yeah, it just kind of defined who I was. Like, I think that, I don't know, Americans especially, I think define ourselves by work. So primarily, it's the first question we all ask each other when we meet, what do you do? And it's just something that almost never comes up in most countries of the world, like weeks in, nobody knows what anybody does for a living often. And so what else I was, was a little bit of a mystery still. And I wasn't sure that I was brave or not. And kind of knowing that, that I could figure things out on my own, that I could make friends really anywhere with or without a language that I could do it was really an empowering thing when it came to just walking into a job interview or walking into eat a meal by myself, which I hadn't done before and which I do all the time now and love, or how to just walk up to somebody new and say hello. All of that was changed by feeling brave. That's why I always encourage women to go on a trip by themselves is, is because of what you bring home. Speaking of brave, let's circle back to your memoir. Mm-hmm. What was it like to write really candidly about your life and your sex life (laughs) and just put it out there for everyone to read? All of those exes, all of your family and friends did. And you were quite young when you wrote it. So did you have, was there any apprehension or were you just excited to put your stories out there? Well, I, so I started to write it just as like funny David Sedaris sort of travel stories that weren't really, really personal. I only write the sex in comedic ways, never in like sexy, sexy ways. It's all of the kind of defensive, protective tools that I have as a comedy writer in my tool belt. And that felt fine. And it was like three stories like that. And then I sold the book and then I had to write the book, the rest of it. And my editor wanted to talk about memoir. And if you're writing a series of stories, it's going to get a little boring and repetitive. And what people want from memoirists, especially female memoirists, which bring about mostly female writers, is to know about you and your childhood and your job and why you are the way you are and your relationship with your parents and your relationship with your boyfriends and all these things at home when I had no intention really of writing about home. And so I sort of fell into writing a memoir in my, you know, late 30s, which is a long time before I plan to die, right? I'm actually, I'm working on a little afterwards for a second edition of the book right now, for the 10th anniversary of it coming out. It's been translated into lots of languages and it's been reprinted a lot, but I've got a coming out and so more people will be buying it. And there were just a few sentences here and there that just didn't age the way that I wanted them to. And so I kind of wanted to 
change those into a little 2023 space when I think there's a lot of things that aren't as funny as they used to be for a variety of reasons involving the world falling apart in 95 ways in the last 10 years. And so all of us changing, I think, a lot more in the last 10 years than we generally change in 10 years. So I'm kind of doing that, but I'm also writing about how there seems to be a reason that people usually traditionally write their memoirs close to when they think they're going to die is just even looking back on it 10 years later, you're like, really? Okay. I mean, think about reading your journal from college. You know, it's truly embarrassing the way you see the world after even 10 years passes. And so I stand behind the way that I saw the world then because it was a time and a place and a moment in time and people find me and are inspired by it still. And I don't want to tell them that I was wrong. And I think I was right about most of it. But there's certainly things that I look back now on and think that's not exactly how it is. But I'm not changing those things because I feel like it it is fair that the person 10 years ago felt that way about the world. And, uh, and you just, you change all the time. But yeah, writing a memoir at that point in my life was not a plan. But I do recommend that everyone does it, even if you show not a single person, because the title, what I was doing while you were breeding, while cheeky, came from the place of writing those first few chapters, talking to my friend Paige about how good it felt to write it, because part of me had felt like in the last 10 years of my 30s and kind of late 20s, when everyone else had been making people, families, building these things, I found myself in between jobs again, in between guys again, about to go on another trip again. And it felt a little bit like I was treading water and not moving forward because I was still doing the same kinds of things I'd been doing 10 years earlier. And then I wrote it all down. And there was so much that I had done. I hadn't done nothing. I wasn't treading water. I had accumulated this huge array of experiences and lessons learned and people that had come into my life and had changed in lots of ways. And I think that it's so easy for women, especially, to feel like we've only achieved if we've checked off this like job, spouse, children, house list. And there's so many other lists that can be checked off that also mean that you've moved forward in your life and have spent the time well. And so just writing down what you've done in your life is a really empowering exercise. And it also makes you forgive yourself in a lot of ways because I went back to therapy a few times because I was writing about this person, me, who the reader has to get behind and root for because she's the protagonist. And if you don't like your protagonist and don't want her to succeed or find her to be an asshole in any way, you often close the book. And so I wanted to be really honest. I feel like a lot of memoirists are not entirely honest. And I really wanted to talk about what I did in really honest ways, because we all make mistakes. And I feel like that's important to present. But it was hard to, I needed to figure out how to do it in a way that still made you hopefully root for me to figure it out and do okay in the end. And so it required actually a lot of forgiveness of myself for mistakes that I made that I didn't love. And so that's also a really good reason to write all your stuff down, even if nobody else reads it. Did you pull from journals over the years or did most of it just live up in your head? A lot of journals and a lot of emails that I sent to people back when you emailed more. So I, you know, I never, I never clear out my inboxes. And then I also just took people out to dinners who I'd gone on trips with and had experiences with then asked them about what they remembered too. And so they had some more details for me. And then in the end, 
And I kind of gave, you know, important people in my life, the chapters that were about them and a red pen and said, you know, if there's anything that's going to destroy our relationship, you know, tell me and I will take it out. I changed names and some details and things anyway, but I think everybody knows who my mom is, for example. And so I wanted to make sure that everybody was not going to be destroyed. I didn't give it to everyone in the book. And, you know, I didn't give that power to everybody who I wrote about in the book. And that was also sort of information that is not that comfortable to get because it was clear who I was not willing to lose for creative freedom and who I was willing to lose for creative freedom. And that is awkward and painful and kind of chapter ending in a lot of ways. But it is what it is. I don't know what else to do. Yeah. And I think it's just the experience of writing memoir. It is pretty fraught. And there are so many questions around memory. And like, you know, I'm sure you had some conversations where your perception of events was very different to the other person who was involved. And then like how to navigate that and write about it in a way that feels fair to both of you. It is a, it's an interesting process for sure. And you're now turning it into, or you have turned it into a TV show, which you started writing in 2020 during the pandemic. It is partly shot in Argentina, as you mentioned. Was it strange to be reliving everything that happened there on that first trip that we discussed, like via actors? So deeply strange that I I truly am not processed with it all yet. I kind of, by the end, went pretty straight Charlie Kaufman adaptation. What is real? What is not? Who is me? Who is the actress? Who is the character? Who is the real Father Juan? Who is the, you know, almost priest uh, boyfriend who? was portrayed by Michelle Noir, who is, whose house are we in right now? This beautiful house on this river that belongs to the family of Father Juan in the TV show that you just want to marry, you want to marry whoever you need to marry to get into this house because it's just so charming and so gorgeous that you just start to put like, what do I need to do to marry into this house? And then I'm looking at this beautiful actor portraying this guy the love story became much bigger in the TV show than really the love story was between us because the chemistry between the real actors was so real and so big and the actors were so good that the love story turned from a vacation romance into a real love story because it just was between them on screen. They just had an incredible chemistry that kind of just blew up. And it was all a very intense, weird emotional throuple that we were all in. And I saw my, you know, ex-Argentine boyfriend while I was there too. And I have a six and a half year old daughter named Finley. And he has a six and a half year old son named Felipe. And Michelle Noir, who plays him, has a six and a half year old son named Anton. And the, uh, who are the children going to play together? What's going to happen? It was so strange. There were all these bizarre little things that happened, like the name Juan appearing in a quote on a wall in the home of this Argentine writer who was one of the desaparecidos who wrote about the regime and was disappeared and killed. And we shot in his house and talked about him and who he was. And on the wall was a, a little quote that basically said, if you're lost on a river, look for Juan. And the house is on a river. And the story was that the character of me had been washed down this river while she was spending the weekend with Juan at his family's house. And in real life, a year ago, I fell upon this house when we were on this river looking for other houses to shoot in. And this man came over and said, can I show you my house? And showed me this house. 
and taught me about Rudolfo Walsh, this desaparecido writer, and want and I said, can I shoot here? And so I had what happened to me happen to the character and had somebody playing that old man who was there with his wife, so happy that Americans are going to learn about this writer legacy they've kept alive through this house. And the crew is crying because they're so moved by being this guy's house. And we're being put up for the night in Nordelta, that community that I was in where I met the real Father Juan 18 years ago. It just all like rolled in on itself like that a hundred times. And it was bizarre. And sometimes you're just watching a very emotive, incredible actress, Chelsea Fry, basically read my act out my journal, right? A lot of it's fiction. And then every so on, there's these big emotional truths that she just says. I would sit behind the monitor going, well, there's that's that's on television now. It's very, very, very intense and strange. I was going to ask you if this trip recaptured the original magic of the first trip, but it seems like it absolutely did. It's still a special place for you, clearly. Yeah, times a million. And it was amazing because I was down there with, you know, maybe 20 Americans and we were working with 100 Argentines. And I watched all of them have vacation romances or huge friendships or romances on the crew or in general, just like move each other. We The end of it all was everybody crying and having these big separation moments that felt exactly like the last time I said goodbye to the real Father Juan and we cried in the airport in Argentina, not because I loved him and wanted to stay with him, but because it was over. It was the same feeling of hugging the actor who played him goodbye in the airport in Argentina after we had just shot in Iguazu Falls and had this big emotional moment, all of us, in a lightning rainstorm in the jungle where so many of the Argentines had never gotten to see either because it's an expensive trip for them to go to the falls and and they just don't get around to it sometimes. So they also had these big adventures together and watching all of these people have their own experience, all of these expat actors who came from all over the world to play the expat friends that I met, they all were in Argentina for two months from all over the world and became great friends and had these big adventures together and wrote about those adventures. And so it it just kind of continued the ball in the most magical way, getting to watch it happen. And I came with my daughter and my husband and my parents to take care of my daughter. So it felt very different having them all there because the main magic of Argentina, I think, was a little bit that I had no one else to take care of. And that was the opposite of having 150 people making your life story and your parents and child and husband there that you're trying to keep happy for all these months in a foreign country. And yet it all happened. And I I think it was because of the gift of every single, all day, every single day, we were hanging out with 150 locals. So like we couldn't have gotten kind of deeper into it. And I was rewriting scripts all the time with little details. Like at we the first episode, we happened to have be on a big day, a big game day for Argentina playing a big soccer match. We wrote this last spring. And then Argentina won the World Cup three weeks before we went to Argentina. And so they were just, it, I can't tell you enough how much it is in them. And like they cry about it still because it's been just such a hard few years. They had the longest lockdown in the world for COVID. They had 100% inflation this year. The dollar doubled in the four months that we were there. They've been through so much. And to, what the World Cup did for them was so intense emotionally. And we happened to be shooting an episode where Argentina wins a huge soccer game. And so we had the huge celebration on the street that we shot for three days in this little street. And we had 200 extras, but also all of these shopkeepers and their families who lived 
above the shops on the street, had their kids on their shoulders, in their soccer jerseys, with their flags, free extras, just because they wanted to relive it. And we're singing and chanting after rap. They just kept going and jumping and singing and chanting and thanking us for letting them relive this moment. So like we were so deeply entrenched in kind of exactly the deliciousness of why I love to travel and learning that in Argentina, when the game was happening, there was a big deal with the Argentine witches of Twitter. In Argentina, if you want to curse somebody, you write their name on a piece of paper and put it in the freezer. But before the final game against France, there were huge headlines in their big national newspaper saying, don't freeze the French. Because the Argentine witches of Twitter said that the French had a protective force field around them, which would bounce the curse back at the person who froze their names. And so they said, "What? don't freeze the French. So nobody was freezing the French. But then the French won two goals in like 90 seconds in that final game. And everyone started to panic. And so then the Argentine witches of Twitter went on to Twitter and said, what you need to do, don't freeze the French, tie anything you have in a knot and say this prayer over and over again. And it was all about tying up their balls until Argentina wins. And million women, a million women were posting pictures of things tied up and then writing out this prayer. And then Argentina won. And so Argentine women feel very much like they helped team win. And so I wrote that into that episode. So I was constantly collecting these little bits from locals around us. It was just like an all day, every day, like orgy of what I love. It's great. It sounds incredible. It must have been really cool to go back there with your husband and your daughter. I have an almost one-year-old, so I know that travel is very different when you have a child in tow. <laughs> but I'm hoping as she gets older, it's going to be way more fun when she kind of is really, truly absorbing these experiences. So yeah, what, what was it like traveling with her? Yeah, it was magical. And it was summer there. So I sent her to summer camp with the local kids. And the biggest deal for me, I mean, she was speaking some Spanish by the end. But the biggest thing was that she came home saying, Mommy, I can make friends with the kids even who don't speak English. Because if they want to play, they just tap me on the shoulder and, you know, hold up a ping pong paddle. And then I know they want to play with me and play ping pong. And so then we do, and then we're friends. And just that sense that she could go and make friends with people who don't speak the same language, I'm done. Like, that's all I need to do here. It's really great. I'm just watching her learn how to, you know, stop traffic in Argentina with her eyes and her hand, which is not a thing. Pedestrians do not have the right of way there. They're very confused why we have pedestrians have the right of way. They're like, but cars are bigger and faster. They should have the right of way they win. And like, that's exactly why pedestrians should have the right of way (laughs) is that the car is bigger and faster and wins. We can't win. And they're like, we don't understand you. But she could like stand on the corner and put her hand out and use these like tough little eyes and like stop Argentine drivers, which was very fierce and wonderful to watch happen. I love that. Was it so crazy to sit down with Father Juan and his kid and your kid? Like, what was that like? (laughs) We did not bring our kids. I never managed to... I I went a year ago alone to scout locations, and that's when we had coffee alone. And it was lovely. We thought we were going to have a hangout with our kids and maybe spouses. And then we just never did, and we never spoke of why. I think for me, at least, I was like, how is this going to feel? This is going to be way too weird. And maybe his wife felt the same way. Maybe he did. I don't know. But it never really happened. But having coffee with him was amazing. It was... uh, what I said to the crew at the rap party was that, you know, when a vacation romance ends and a, a special play and you leave a place that you love, it feels like, you know, you'll never be back and it's over forever. 
And then 10 years later, I ended up having coffee with this guy in this country that I got to be in because I got to sell a show about this whole experience that we had and come back and have this entirely new version of it. And leaving all of these people that I made this show with uh, was so hard for all of us. We were all so attached, but I really feel like it was a real vacation romance. And so what I learned is you never know when it's the end or when you'll find your way back to each other in some other way in the future. So it was an amazing thing, not because we needed to be in love, but just this feeling that like, there is this weird cosmic, like, how do our lives keep crossing all of these times after all of these years? And it was cool. It made, I, I feel like we both made each other's worlds bigger in really good ways. And I'm assuming the show's not going to come out on schedule because of the strikes. When is it now scheduled yeah. to be released? Yeah, it's a gigantic tragedy. I got home and the next day we went on strike. And so I can't edit. And so it was supposed to come out in August 2023. And now it's, quote unquote, sometime in 2024, depending on when the strike is over. But it will be in 2024 on Freeform and then Hulu the next day. And uh, it looks like a big, beautiful travel movie. I, I We also shot in Latvia and in Iceland and in L.A. And it's just really tremendously gorgeous. We shot it like a movie and it really is so pretty. And the chemistry really happened. So. I'm really thrilled. Oh, what a dream experience. Congratulations. Thank you. How do you feel like this trip to Argentina changed you or altered the trajectory of your life? Well, certainly the first one changed my trajectory because it made me love solo travel. It kept me single for probably another, you know, eight years because I so desperately wanted to keep doing it. Uh, there was kind of finally a year where I felt like, Okay, here I am, like alone on this beach, looking at a glacier. Like I've, have I, I think I've sat on a lot of beautiful spots, alone, looking at beautiful things. Like I've done a lot. I think I feel like I've proved to myself I can do this. Like I think if it were over, and I was doing it in a different way with somebody, I would be okay. So it took me a while to get there, but I did eventually get there. Some people don't. I have lots of friends who I've met traveling, who are always going to do it and have no desire to ever settle down. And that is also awesome. And I feel a little bit weird that my journey ended up with a kid because I feel a little bit like I don't want to tell everybody that that's where it has to end up. Certainly the TV series will never end with her getting pregnant. Like I will never do that. I really, you know, I really want it to not be a story of something that you do on a journey to a destination that you must reach. Otherwise you haven't achieved anything. It's really important to me. I happen to, with great difficulty, make a baby, <laughs> but not certainly not everybody does. So it kept me single for a long time. It kept me going back to Argentina. I went back two more times before this last two times that I went to make the TV show and had many more adventures there. And then I got to make this incredible show where I got to bring my entire family that really gave me Argentina back. It kind of felt like it lived in this before time for me and this single girl time for me. And I didn't feel kind of part of this. Whenever my husband would say, let's go to Patagonia, I would say, or Cambodia too would be good because it felt like mine. And now it feels like ours and it feels like my kids and it feels like my parents. And it gave me this incredible thing that we all shared together and that hundreds of people got to do together too. So, you know, it, it changed certainly my creative life in an enormous way, but also my travel life, my personal life. And, my family life ultimately changed everything. Kristen, thank you so much. I cannot wait for the TV show. I will be like on the edge of my seat when, that, when that's released. It's going to be so good. 
Thank you. I hope you like it. It was so nice to talk to you. Can you um, tell everyone where they can find you on the internet? Yes, you can find me at the other Kristen Newman on Twitter or the other Kristen on Instagram. And before you go, I'd love to do a quick fire round. Great. Okay. What's the one experience every person should have in their lifetime? Travel alone. What's the one thing you never ever travel without? It's this uh, like poofy jacket by Tumi that also zips into being a neck pillow. I need one. <laughs> yeah, I need, need it. If you could teleport anywhere just for the day, where would you go and what would you do? Antarctica, because the trip sounds very hard across the ocean and I desperately want to be at Antarctica. What have you been surprised to learn about yourself through traveling? That I can sit quietly. Airbnb, hotel, or staying with friends, and why? Staying with friends because they introduce you to more people. What's the recommendation for a podcast, a show, or a book to stay entertained on a long journey? I really enjoy Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, uh, Revisionist History. I always learn something on it that I feel like I can't believe I never knew before. And finally, where is next on your bucket list? Africa. I somehow have never been to Africa and it shocks me and upsets me all the time. Anywhere specific within Africa? Mm, I want to go on safari, maybe South Africa, maybe Tanzania, maybe Kenya, maybe Botswana. I don't know, but I want to see some gorillas. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It was nice to meet you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review, and follow so we can keep this adventure going. <laughs>